This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm not going to take it anymore! Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the uh, Easter edition of The Conspiracy Show, and to all my Greek Orthodox friends, Kalapaska, Happy Easter, uh, Christos Anesti, Christ has risen, Alithos Anesti, indeed, he has risen. It seems that uh, every Easter I find myself discussing uh, really one of my favorite topics, and it, it's never more appropriate to discuss this particular artifact then on Easter, and that, of course, is the Shroud of Turin, uh, this centuries-old linen cloth that appears to uh, to bear the image of a crucified man, uh, um, the man that uh, millions believe to be uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, but is it really the cloth that wrapped his crucified body, or is it simply a medieval forgery? Well, we're about to find out when we'll speak with a, a medical doctor uh, who will review the latest scientific evidence uh, regarding the Shroud of Turin. A little later in the program, uh, Victor Vigiani from uh, Zeland Communications News Network will be uh, with us in studio, along with Dr. Michael Sala, the director of the Exopolitics Institute, and UFO journalist Paula Harris. We'll all convene our UFO panel uh, to discuss the, uh, the sighting of uh, this amazing light or orb uh, that was seen hovering over the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem in late January. And uh, there's been some recent uh, video uh, released on YouTube uh, that has a lot of people scratching their heads. We'll discuss that as well as the recent release of some FBI documents, the HOTL uh, memo in particular, uh, in which a memo, a memo was written to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, uh, which clearly uh, mentions uh, the discovery of alien bodies aboard uh, no less than three downed UFOs or flying saucers uh, back in, um, in, in uh, 1950 or thereabouts in New Mexico. Whether the memo is referring to the crash at Roswell in 47, uh, the San Antonio crash in 45, or another crash in New Mexico uh, in Aztec 
uh, approximately one at, one year after Roswell, which would have been nine, would have been 1948. Uh, anyway, it's a fascinating memo, the Hottle memo. We'll get into that, and we'll also speak with um, uh, Peter Davenport, who is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, on a number of issues, including a. Um, a UFO sighting here in Ontario you may not have been aware of. Back in 1995, a giant fireball that uh, uh, that uh, was seen as far afoot as, as far as a field as uh, as Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, and um, in uh, in in Windsor. We'll uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. But first, the most studied artifact in human history, and perhaps one of the most controversial, the Shroud of Turin. Dr. Andrew Silverman is a medical doctor with a background in physiology, and he's always been interested, well, from a very early age, in fact, in the nature of what we are as human beings and what our potential is. He's also always been fascinated to know how the image on the Shroud of Turin could have formed, being mindful of the fact that it cannot be replicated even with 21st century technology. Last year, Dr. Silverman presented a paper on the Shroud of Turin at a conference at the Atomic Physics Research Center in uh, in um, Frascati, Italy. And he has been invited to give two more presentations next month, May 2011, at a conference at the University of Gdansk. Dr. Andrew Silverman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very happy to be here. Uh, let me ask you first, uh, why, I mean, the, the Shroud of Turin is probably the most studied artifact in human history and arguably one of the most controversial artifacts, but but why did you become first interested in the Shroud? Well, you know, um, I was fascinated by how the image could ever have got there because the thing is, um, of course, that we can't replicate it now, even with all the sort of space age technology that's around at the moment. No one knows how to make anything even even remotely similar, and that this thing's been around for so many centuries, uh, with all the unique properties that that it has, is is just incredible. Uh, I actually first uh, became aware of the shroud when I was visiting my uh, visiting my friend Nigel's place when uh, many years ago, and uh, he actually had a, a full length photograph of the shroud on the wall, and I was asking him about it and uh, you know a little bit about the the background of it and and so on, and I just found it amazing that that such an artifact could exist. Then, of course, uh, when the, the the carbon dating happened, then a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, this, this clearly must be something medieval then because it's been dated to the 13th or, or 14th century. But I noticed, because I read the uh, actual article in Nature where the collaborative carbon dating report was, was put, was, was published, that there was something a bit strange about the about the figures that are actually that they actually published, that it suggests statistically looking at it that the different parts of the sample that were dated actually had significantly different amounts of carbon fourteen in them in different different ages beyond what you'd expect by chance. So I thought there was something a little bit fishy about this and by by saying fishy I, I don't mean that 
there was any kind of foul play by the by the scientists involved in in dating it. But what I mean is that there may have been some flaw in their in their methods and so on, which actually made them come up with the with the wrong date. And in fact, they didn't follow the original protocols at all um, that had been planned, and they didn't follow the the protocols that are supposed to be done with carbon dating, taking the sample from a part of it that had been most handled through the through the centuries and so on. And there was some great work done by a couple in, in the States, Benford and Marino, that actually they found, looking at the, the cloth, uh, in the region of the um, where the dating had been done, that it looked like it was actually two different types of cloth. And uh, there, was one, there was one scientist who was part of the original... Um, study group on the Turin Shroud, which was called the STERP, Shroud of Turin Research Project, who was uh, a chemist at Los Alamos Laboratory called Ray Rogers. And when he heard the fact that they were disputing the carbon dating, he got annoyed by this because he was very much a, a scientist and wanted to believe what the evidence showed. And he said, I'm going to prove these people wrong in five minutes. And so he actually did the studies to test what they were saying. And he said afterwards uh, that he had intended to prove them wrong. He ended up proving them right. And he was published in, in peer-reviewed journals to suggest that actually it was a, it was a reweave. The part that was tested was a, a partly a patch that was sewn in later in the, in the 16th century together with the original cloth, hence the erroneous erroneous date. But so just to clarify, uh, uh, Andrew, the the sample that was used uh, by the laboratories, one not too far from you at the University of Oxford, uh, the University of Arizona and the, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, those samples that were taken uh, were removed from a piece of the fabric that was in fact a a swatch, uh, sort of a repair swatch, because mm -hmm. the shroud survived a fire. Uh, parts of the shroud, the the, uh, the herringbone uh, twill was was scorched, uh, and so sometime in the 16th century, a a newer piece of 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 linen was woven into the shroud as a repair, and the, the these repair swatches were where the were, were where where the, the the samples were taken for the for the uh, the carbon uh, dating. Is that correct? Well, um, almost. I mean, there there were uh, patches that were that are well known to have been sewn in after the fire, but this is slightly different. It was in the corner of the cloth where it had been damaged by so many people handling it, and it's thought that also relic hunters had had cut little bits off to to sell them, um, and that the the nuns had been repairing it because of the damage that had been that had accrued to that particular corner of the shroud because it was right in the corner where the carbon dating sample was taken which is where it was most handled because every time it was shown people would hold it from the from the corners so, so you're so you're convinced that the the shroud uh, does not date uh, between 1260 and 1390 but that it is in fact a first century AD artifact indeed in fact we can Probably we can trace it even more specifically than that. Uh, there was uh, um, some research that was done into the uh, Jewish burial practices at the, it, under the, to the wards, the victims of crucifixion. Because, you know, um, according to, to Jewish tradition, 
somebody is the body is supposed to be buried very quickly but the the thing is that when the the romans were in charge of everything they as a make an example of the people who had been crucified they wanted to to leave the body out for the birds to peck at and all of that you know terrible kind of thing but there was actually at the time there was a um a, a jewish leader that that part of uh, judea and so he had some authority over what was happening and and people who were crucified between ad 6 and ad 66 would have been would have been taken down from the cross and and buried rather than being left out for the for the bird, so to speak, and it, it seems from looking at the shroud that that that's indeed what happened to this particular individual. Obviously, I need to to get to say a little bit more about the the image on the shroud to to justify what I'm saying because well, we we will do that, uh, Andrew. Sure. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back, and uh, we'll discuss the uh, remarkable image, uh, which appears to have suffered some sort of physical trauma in a manner consistent with crucifixion is in fact the burial is this the burial cloth of jesus christ or is it as some maintain a medieval forgery back with dr andrew silverman here on the conspiracy show stay with us In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Dr. Andrew Silverman is with us live from the UK as we discuss one of the most remarkable uh, relics uh, in the Christian world, the most studied artifact probably in human history and very controversial even an avowed atheist uh, such as uh, Richard Dawkins uh, finds the carbon testing troublesome uh, so th- for those who who, who believe uh, that the case has been closed on the shroud and that the carbon dating conclusively proves that this is a medieval forgery dating back to say the the, the 1260s to the 1390s that is not for certain. It's very much in dispute. Uh, uh, I, for one, uh, believe, I, Dr. Silverman, let me just say, I, I married an, an archaeologist. And, and one of the things that archaeologists will tell you is that if all the other evidence is pointing to one date, the only thing that's not pointing to that date is the carbon des- testing. You don't throw out all the other evidence and embrace the carbon, uh, carbon dating. Uh, yet that is, uh, that appears to be what most of the scientific community is done. I mean, we have this 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 cloth that is woven, this herringbone twill, which uh, which is very consistent. Uh, I understand with with uh, the way that a, a burial shroud would have been. It's unique to the first century uh, A.D. in Jerusalem, is it not? Yes, yes, um, and there's other evidence, of course based on uh, pollen and and various botanical evidence on the shroud that does point to it having been in Jerusalem around uh, March or or April based upon the the pollens and when they and when they flower and so on there, your background there's... is physiology your your background is in physiology let's discuss the physiology uh, the the image the trauma 
um, you know, we have the, uh, we have, uh, you know, gouges, uh, a gouge in the side penetrating into the, uh, the thoracic uh, cavity. We have small puncture wounds around the forehead and the scalp. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you see, if you, it's been studied, the shroud has been studied by forensic pathologists in, in great detail. And the, the, I should say about the, first of all, just a, sorry, a, a brief introduction to people about the shroud for those who don't know it. It's a, it's a 14 foot long piece of cloth that has the imprint of a man, both, both front and, and back on it. And um, the the marks on the there's three times kinds of mark on the cloth. There's the the fire scorching. There's red marks that look like blood stains, which have been shown to in fact be blood stains. And then there's the this image of the man that looks at first sight as though it's a as though it's a faint image, although you can see that it is an image of a man. Now, in 1898, the photographer Secondo Pia had a project to, to photograph the shroud using early camera technology. And the story goes that, that when he took a picture of it, when he saw the negative, he nearly dropped his photographic plate in, in shock because when you look at a photographic negative of the image on the shroud, what you see is a positive. So to, what that implies, of course, is that the shroud image itself is a negative. Now. This image, when you look at it sort of physically and chemically, uh, what constitutes the image, it's not paint. If it had been paint, the fibers would have been matted together and it would soak through. But this image is only on the, the outermost surface fibrils, not even the fibers, the fibrils in a microscopic level. And it is constituted by nothing that's been added to the shroud, but a slight change in the chemical structure of the cellulose in the in the cloth now one of the um, physicists a professor from uh, from Frascati actually from the atomic uh, energy research lab dr. de Lazaro he actually found that you can get a similar change to to a cloth if you shine ultraviolet laser light onto it now this would, though, have necessitated, if it had been done by laser, 10,000, more, you know, more than that, different la hundreds of thousands of lasers in each microscopic point. It just, it just wouldn't work. The point is that it has, if you look at the shroud, the, one of the characteristics is the photographic negative characteristic. Another characteristic is it has what's known as distance-coded information. This was discovered by researchers at the Jet Propulsion laboratory in I believe in Pasadena meaning it's a three di three-dimensional image yeah well it's a, it's a two-dimensional image with three-dimensional information so that when you put it through an image intensifier if you put any photograph through an image intensifier you see a random collection of peaks and troughs but put a picture of the shroud through an image intensifier and you what you get is a three-dimensional relief of the body of the man coming out at you which means that the intensity of the image is related to the distance from of the between the cloth and the skin, which further implies that the if as De Lazaro research implies, the image was formed by a short, intense burst of radiant energy that came from the body of the man. That must be what it what it was. That it wasn't reflected, wasn't reflected light like an ordinary picture. 
he was shining for for a momentary instant of time the this dead body was shining brighter than the sun and that's how the image got on there so uh, talk to me about the we'll, we'll take another time out when we come back uh, talk to me about the the signs of trauma visible on the shroud that are in fact consistent uh, with a crucifixion. We'll do that with uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Andrew Silverman stays with us as we discuss the Shroud of Turin on this uh, special Easter broadcast of The Conspiracy Show. The, um, what to me is, is most remarkable um, is if this was a medieval forgery. I mean, I don't think even uh, Leonardo da Vinci would have been able to encode this with, with uh, a three-dimensional uh, uh, information. Uh, never mind a negative. Essentially, it's an X-ray. Uh, but he would have had to, had to have had the most remarkable uh, knowledge of physiology uh, and forensics. Yes, uh, and in fact, he would have had to have been a time traveler as well, because the the thing is that even the the people who who believe the the carbon dating and the and the the, the shroud the, uh, being in the that they know that it's since when it's been in the possession of the Savoy family and in France and so on. It would have had. It, they know it was around for a hundred years before he was born. So um, you know, it's just it's just laughable, really. I mean, he, he's a great artist. I really love his work, but he. I don't think he was quite capable of that. <laughs> All right. So let's let's talk about uh, some of the um, the signs of trauma. Um, the, the the remarkable one to me the uh, the the signs of crucifixion the, uh, the 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 nails through the wrists, not the hands, because okay. you because the thumb is not visible. Uh, and this is a perfect example. I mean, most of us have learned that you know that that uh, the, the, the spikes went through the palms of the hands uh, and through the feet. Not so, according to the shroud. Mm. Yes. In fact, the the thing is that if you put a, a nail through through the wrist, in that particular part of the wrist, where where it's shown to have been and where it would have had to have been uh, anatomically and pathologically, you would have an effect on something called the median nerve, which passes through there, stimulating the median nerve, which we know would make would make the thumb draw in against the palm, uh, and that's what you see on the shroud. Now. Looking at the at the skin, you can see over a hundred breaks in the skin from what look like tiny round balls, collections of of, um, of three of them. Which the archaeologists tracing that back find that it fits exactly with the the shape of the the Roman flagrum that the Romans used to use to to torture people. You can even see from the, the, the tracing of the, of the, from the marks where they were and how they're aligned, that he was whipped by two people, one standing on, on either side of him. And then if you, if you look at the, at the marks and the bloodstains, you can actually see that each of them has, has shows the serum, which fluoresces under ultraviolet light and so on, in exactly the pattern that it would have forensically if this had actually happened to, to a man. And as you say, the marks on the, on the head, which are suggestive of a, of a set of sharp objects, such as, as thorns that had been placed on, on his head. And, I mean, 
and the the fact that he had been pierced in the side all of these are consistent with the the story specifically of of Jesus now can i just say you mentioned about this being the most significant artifact in the christian world i i think we don't actually need the adjective christian in there um it's just for me it's the most amazing artifact in the world and of course there was no such thing as as christian in those days jesus himself was a jew i actually come from a from a jewish background myself so i don't have any sort of um religious axe to grind um with regard to to the shroud at all but as a as someone who's studied science i want to try to understand it from a scientific perspective and look at the evidence and try and find out what makes sense now out of the um original stirp group the shroud of turin research project these weren't a group of, of people who were who particularly believed in the shroud or um or had any particular religious beliefs in fact there were atheists christians jews amongst them but these were scientists who were uh, who were studying who just found it an interesting artifact and wanted to study it and on studying it they became convinced that this thing is this thing is genuine and you know they were quite surprised to 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 find that but each way you look at it it this it just couldn't have been forged really it it just is it's speak the evidence really does speak for itself well andrew okay so let's um suppose then that this is in fact a burial shroud of a victim of roman crucifixion mm. why then do we are we able in your mind to go and according to the facts go one step further uh, and suggest that this was in fact the burial shroud of jesus christ well if you look at specifically the the story as it's as it's told of of what happened to him i mean it wasn't normal practice for the for the romans to to whip people put a uh, a cap of thorns on their head and and pierce them in the side the normal practice was that they were they were crucified and then had their legs broken and and so on so and his legs weren't broken so um there's so much that's pointing to it being him but whoever it was my where i my ideas come in on the the shroud is in the question of how does a dead body shine brighter than the sun and to try and connect in the what is the nature of mind and how that relates to to matter to try to get some kind of understanding of it so that whatever the name of this individual was i think the the point is that this gives us a, a clue to the immense limitless potential of all human beings because whoever it was it was a human being and interestingly jesus used to refer to himself as the son of man and he always used to say that all these things that i do you too can do and greater than these things can you do and you know is it not written you are gods so he was always suggesting that humanity as a whole had had limitless potential and he was just showing an exact showing what we can do what we can what we can achieve uh, andrew before we we get into uh, who you think uh, Jesus was and the significance of this. Let me, a couple of uh, quick points. And this one I've ne- never uh, been known, I've never known how to uh, to address. It's perplexed me uh, because I, I mean, I believe that the, that the shroud is the genuine article. However, there's one nagging problem for me, and that is uh, the, um, the Apostle Paul uh, 
he uh, wrote, I believe, and it was a letter to the Corinthians about, uh, you know, basically uh, warning people about, uh, warning men about growing their hair long, uh, saying it was sort of an abomination and so forth. And yet the, the victim of crucifixion in the shroud has quite clearly shoulder length hair. How do you, how do you, how do we get around that? I mean, if it was Jesus, wasn't, wouldn't the historical Jesus in fact have had short hair? No, I don't, th- I don't think so at all. The, th- the thing is, Paul, of course, is not thought historically to have actually met Jesus, so he wouldn't have necessarily even known that he had long hair. And I think Paul was showing himself to be a little bit bigoted there in, in what he said about, about um, people with, with long hair. And I don't think um, his prejudices uh, need to have any particular relevance to um to the man on the shroud at all uh, just because paul claims to to speak on on his behalf uh, i think you know a lot of the things that paul said are are a bit a bit dubious and that's you've given a a particularly good example of it i i prefer to where possible stick to the sources as, as close as i can get to find out what jesus himself might have said and i don't limit myself to to the New Testament Gospels, but I'm also fascinated by the the Gnostic Gospels, for instance, that were found at, at Nakamadi and, and, and so on, which also give a lot of insight into the man. All right. So in addition to the, the shroud uh, demonstrating or, or, or um, containing evidence uh, of a, a crucified victim, you also believe then that there is evidence in the shroud contained in the shroud for a some sort of resurrection event is that correct I, I think it I would say it's consistent with a with a resurrection event certainly I mean there was some research that's been done on it by a, another physician actually who's quite expert in in forensics and and applying them to the the image on the shroud uh, called uh, dr. Lavoie where he looks at the image and and says hang on a minute if this man had been laid out on a slab when the the image formed, you would expect the hair to be resting back. You would expect the the soft parts of the body at the back, like the buttocks and the calves, to be flattened against the slab. And actually, you don't see that. The hair is actually on his shoulders, the um, and the muscles are, are rounded. And there are some people who have come back and said, well, you know, it, this could have been rigor mortis, although, of course, hair doesn't have rigor mortis. But there's a couple of points against that. One is that rigor mortis is a, a temporary thing. And the other point, which Lavoie made quite sensibly, is that rigor mortis affects muscle. It doesn't affect what we call the skin or, or subcutaneous tissues. So even when someone is in rigor mortis and their muscles are tense, you will still get compression of the skin and you won't have that rounded appearance at the at the back. So it suggests that he was actually upright, but then when you look at the feet, the feet aren't in a position where they're resting on the ground. It actually, as strange as it may sound, the evidence points to the, the, the conclusion, I would suggest, that when the image was formed, this dead body was vertical, vertical and suspended in the air. Now that sounds quite bizarre perhaps, but that's what the evidence suggests. Levitating in a vertical position. Yeah. Well, during I mean, the, sorry. No, during the resurrection event. 
Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it quite, it's quite consistent with there having been a resurrection event. Otherwise, why would this dead body shine like that? And, I mean, if you look at the stories about the life of Jesus, it's interesting that there are there is an account of him having walked on water, which would, and another one of him rising up in the air. But and the, one, the most fascinating thing about that to me is not that Jesus walked on water. I'm fascinated by the fact that that Peter is also said to have walked on water. And this goes along with what I was suggesting, that Jesus was pointing out the potential of all humanity, that it's not just that he was some magical person who um, just appeared, that, that he was a human being, just like we're all human beings. And he was saying, if you live a life like this, this is what how you will change, not to do sort of magic tricks like walking on water or shining, but that your whole outlook changes and your, your mind changes. And through changing the mind, one side effect of that, if you like, is that matter also changes. Let, let's talk a little bit about the connection between this resurrection event uh, and, and quantum physics. Mm-hmm. What, what is the connection, do you think? Well... This fascinating idea that, yeah, to to connect the two. I, looking at, there was one of the, actually, the founders of quantum theory called um, Erwin Schrödinger, who um, is the, the one who came up with the, the wave equation, which has been shown to be accurate, virtually one of the most accurate things that has been, as scientists have, have come up with. And he came to some certain conclusions from, from his studies in, in quantum theory. And, and these are to do with the nature of mind and how it, how it relates to, to matter and how it relates to space and space and time. For example, he, what he said is that if you look at the, the mind, it has a fascinating, a fascinating property that we're always in our minds when we're conscious with this we're always within what we call now and yet if you look at the scientific equations that describe time they there's nothing in there that suggests that there should be a present a past present and future all the way from the big bang to the to the heat death end of the the universe could all be laid out in one go and there would be no conscious experience no sentience no moment called now that goes along with it and what he said is that actually by being sentient by being conscious we're actually making what we call time and if time is a product of the mind then the mind cannot be a product of time and also that the time cannot be the end of the mind in other words that because we make this moment we call now the mind has to be eternal. Now, interesting, interesting. And also that because the nature of mind is the nature of the, sc the scope of awareness, sentience, and free choice, which you could see, if you like, in a crude way, as like the input and the output of the mind, so to speak, that's the same for everyone. All that's different is our individual memories, experiences, and the choices that we make. And what he suggested was that Actually, mind is all one, but we divide it up by our individuality and so on. And if free will does exist, if it does, then free will is a primary cause that can actually make something happen without itself 
being made to happen. Nothing makes you make the choice that you make. So if that's the case and the whole universe came from nothing, at the Big Bang when everything was together, if we were eternal, we were all together. And if there was nothing, no, nothing physical there, then there was nothing physical to make it happen. Perhaps we made it happen, a sentient being, in a choice to be separate, to divide. And perhaps that's what's made what scientists define as the, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is, is now breaking apart. The universe is expanding and, and everything is going into greater and greater states of chaos. Now, in, in doing this, Perhaps we've taken on in becoming separate. Separation is just another word for space, and space is another word for separation. In doing that, perhaps... Separation is also another word for sin, perhaps. Well, the word sin, of course, has, has uh, sort of religious connotations, um, but I don't think Jesus was talking about religion. I think he was talking about reason. And in fact, if you look at the word that he used, which has been translated as repent, metanoiate, actually means change your mind. And, um, you know, Nigel points out that perhaps what people are talking about when they talk about sin is actually like a restriction of mind. So if free will gives us freedom, then by, by using our will to restrict ourselves by becoming ignorant through things that divide, like racism, selfishness, materialism, and so on, all that it means, it's not something like dirty in, a, in us, or it's just that we're restricted. We're less than our potential. We're less than we could be. Now, if that's the case, and we've actually taken on physical bodies by that act of separation, then perhaps it could be that what Jesus was showing is a way of, of undoing that separation, a way of... He, he actually said that the greatest commandment is... Love your neighbor as yourself. This quote from a great quote from Leviticus. That actually, maybe that makes sense because your neighbor is yourself. If Schrodinger was right, that all right. We'll take an, sorry, sorry, Andrew. We'll take another time out. We'll come back. We'll continue along with our discussion on the Shroud of Turin. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. the shadows where the truth often hides you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 andrew silverman stays with us as we discuss the shroud of turn here on the conspiracy show now i want to get back to the the light you, you described brighter than the sun that um, mm. was present during the resurrection event uh, i mean is this is there, are there traces of, 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 of radiation uh, either in the, the linen itself or perhaps if we were to identify the correct location of the tomb, whether or not it's the Holy Church of the Sepulchre or some other location, is it possible that traces of that radiation could still be there? Well, of course, it depends on, on how it happened, of course. And there are some scientists... That, that do think that this was like a, a nuclear radiation type type event that to do with the um, atoms coming apart and so on and, and radiating neutrons and, and and so on which which could have an effect and and they they want to do research looking into it but I'm not so sure that that that's, it was necessarily like that the way 
the way I, my particular take on it, in keeping with the notion that this was actually uh, radiation of, of light, whether it be visible light uh, or including ultraviolet light, that wouldn't actually make anything radioactive. You see, the way I see it is that matter is actually itself frozen light, and that would be uh, in keeping with the uh, Einstein's equations and and with the fact that we know that soon after the Big Bang, that there was a, a time that that the cosmologists call the the um, like a photon phase, if you like, light phase, where the the universe was was mostly light before there were any atoms, and we know that that light can can be, can get converted into into matter. So what the way I see it, and this is actually something that I extrapolated on based on something that that, that Nigel wrote back in the the 1980s, in which he postulated that that matter is actually frozen thought and that uh, light is is like a um, intermediary between that which would fit with uh, I, if you look at the Einstein's time dilation equation for example the fascinating thing about the speed of light is that if you are actually light if you're actually going at the speed of light so to speak firstly you couldn't be material you couldn't be atomic to do that because matter can't do that but if you were if the, if you were able to be at the speed of light you could be everywhere all at once it, no time would would pass for you in fact i i made this point uh to uh, a great physicist, Professor Sir Herman Bondi, when he came and gave a talk at my university when I was a student, and he agreed that the the equations did did fit with that, although he didn't particularly see that it was relevant to anything. But I I do think it is relevant that that actually, if the shroud is implying that matter was converted into light, then maybe that the state of being in matter is a restricted state that we've that we've taken on. Devil, devolution, a, a form of devolution. Let me let me just back up and make sure I understand, and, and, and those that are, are listening are following along as well. Um, so are, you're suggesting, well, and you're not suggesting. I think, uh, uh, as you point out, that Einstein was suggesting that matter is condensed energy. Correct? Do I have it right? Yes. Yes. E, well, equals mc squared suggests that 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 mass is condensed energy. Yes. Okay. And so, if matter is condensed energy you're therefore saying that matter is also condensed thought well i'm not saying i'm not saying energy is thought but there how do we account for the connection between mind and matter such that we're in some way connected to a brain that we can we can have perception and subjectivity and it seems that we have free will and how does that work if that if if we actually do have free will and the the thing is that you can either you can see it as a duality that they're two different things in which case how do they interrelate or you can see it as a lot of scientists do that mind is just an emergent property that happens from a certain arrangement of atoms but there's so much evidence that that's not true um, for example, empirical work that's been done on near-death experiences where the brainwaves are flat and people are still conscious. So the, the third possibility is that rather than mind being a product of matter, that matter may indeed be a product of mind, which would fit with, of course, the um, 
quantum theory and in particular in the, the Copenhagen interpretation that you have to actually have an observer for matter to actually have any definite state or to be anything at all that otherwise if, it's all just possibilities if a tree falls in the forest and so forth and nobody's there to hear it well right. and you need an observer yes i mean actually you can from experiments that you can actually deduce that that while the electron or the photon or whatever it was was not observable that you couldn't know where it was you can see that at some times it could have been in several places at once that you can actually verify it so it's it's not sort of on the um the sort of uh the solipsistic thing of of just only it's only what's real is what i see this is actually science based on based on empirical observation it sounds strange that you can observe something but you can you, you don't actually observe it not being observable but you can see that while it wasn't observable it didn't have any fixed location anywhere so by 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 resurrecting by returning essentially to light mm. uh you know jesus was uh, uh when he died he was he was matter during the resurrection event he returned to to light uh, I mean, what what is the lesson here for us? How do we do that? Well, I would suggest that if if he was actually because people um, said that they that they saw him after the resurrection, that his he took his body some of the way through to to light, if you like, and so it and so it shone. But then it said that at a later stage he actually shone again, and and the body disappeared completely. So I think the the lesson there. Or the, the, or I would say the the logical implication there is that if that's possible, if the human being can can do that just through living a life where they're putting into practice what he was what he was teaching, that they're seeing that actually the neighbor and self are the same. That um, empathy would then derive from that. You could see, if you like, that he was the the complete opposite of a of a psychopath, if you like. That a psychopath is a human being who has no empathy. They don't realize that other people have feelings. That's why they can be so cruel to them, because to them they're just objects. But that's the, the sort of furthest extent of depravity of human being, if you like, is that. And then if you take it to its other extreme, opposite extreme, of complete empathy, complete understanding and recognition of the value of all human beings such that you you live your life in in a way that you cherish and, and value humanity as a as a whole then perhaps something actually physically starts to change it's interesting that there are the if you look at sort of depictions of of great teachers throughout history throughout you know different different religions and cultures and so on they're often shown as having light around them now Maybe at some point this is something that people can sense, and then maybe if it goes even further, it becomes something that's actually actually visible, as it as it was presumably in in Jesus's case, as there are reports of him shining, and also the the shroud is evidence that for one brief moment he, the, whoever the person was that was wrapped in that shroud, shroud, their body shone brighter than the sun. So it shows that actually. That it's possible. It shows that we need to to cherish humanity. That we need to understand how precious every single human being is. And that if 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 that would be one thing that could be could be 
taught in schools, if you like, from a from an early age that firstly it shows that all humanity is equal, whatever background, whatever you know, gender, race, class, whatever, that all human beings have that have that potential to be completely limitless to the extent that he didn't just say his father and he were one and the same, referring to God. He said, is it not written, you are God's, talking to humanity as a whole, that if we were all once one and in limitless capacity, what would be the difference between that and this idea of uh, omnipotent, omniscient being? Perhaps we were part of that, if you like, that, that being, and that if it's something that exists beyond time, then it's still there, so to speak, but that we've made a, a, a self for ourselves with an ego in separation through division and through restriction, and but that we're actually capable of undoing those restrictions. And not that, that's why I'm not too keen on words like sin and so on, because it, it has religious connotation. And for me, I don't think any of the great teachers have actually been religious or starting or intending to start religions. If you look at... No, I agree. I, I meant it, it, it to, um, uh, to take the word and uh, give it some context in, in light of what you're saying. So in other words, instead of sin, uh, what it means is separateness, separateness from whether it's separateness from the Godhead, separateness from our collective consciousness, but we're, we're, we're separating ourselves. Sure, sure. Um, but if, if, if you, uh, I, sorry, I, I do take your point about that, but I think it, it does bear saying anyway um, that, I mean, if you, if you look at uh, Jesus' attitude to, to organized religion, he had reverence for the, um, the origins of it, but in terms of what it actually had become, he was, he was very critical. And I think he might be just as critical of, of modern-day so-called Christianity, which claims to be in his name. Oh, I agree. I, when I always say Christianity is not a religion, it's a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we're, we're not here to debate religion, but I, I, listen, this is fascinating, and, and uh, uh, it's a wonderful message. Final question. Given what you've told us about the nature of who we are, uh, where do we go when we die? I mean, do we return to, again, to get back into the quantum physics aspect, do we ter- return to a singularity? What happens? Well, I believe that, or looking at it this rationally and looking at the, at the evidence, there's a lot of evidence. In fact, you know, um, reincarnation was once believed by, by, all the, by all the religions. In fact, there's, uh, there was some uh, event in, in the history of the church where uh, references, they tried to take out a lot of the references to it. But there are some that uh, are still there. For example, when um, he's asking the apostles, who do they say that, that you are, I am? And so this is, some say that you are Elijah returned. How does Elijah return? And um, if there's not reincarnation, and more specifically, that when they say, but people say that Elijah has to come back before the Messiah can come. And he says, well, he has already returned and people didn't recognize him. And then it says in the gospel that, and they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So, yes, yes. 
so they're saying that Elijah reincarnated as John the Baptist. How else can you can you interpret that? And if you look at evidence from these um, past life memories and so on, yes, I mean you can say a lot of it could be things that people have have um, picked up on and so on. But of, often there have been cases where there's it couldn't have been known about because no one knew about it until it gets discovered later by archaeologists. That what they're saying is that what they're saying is right, and just think, thinking about it rationally, if there is this state of absolute perfection with no limits that we can achieve through freeing our minds, but you know, generally we don't free our minds. We generally, as human beings, we live our lives and we have our our restrictions. So how could we, if we couldn't go there, then where do we go? And you know, if people are new people are being born all the time where does that consciousness come from that sentience come from that identity come from if as Schrodinger said it is actually something that's eternal it makes sense to me that where it would come from is somebody who had died before who is then who is then coming back and the the problem is that with the the second law of thermodynamics being what it is and momentums that separate and divide being what they are the tendency is that each time we we become more more ignorant but it's not a fait accompli that because we are limitlessly able to to learn and to change our ways if we choose to then we can we can reverse that momentum and we can actually unite instead of instead of dividing and we can actually, it is possible for people to, to you know, like uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change that you want to, to see in the world. And it's, this might all sound moralistic and, and goody-goody and all of these kinds of things. But actually, I think it's just simple reason that you can derive from, from rational principles that you don't need to believe anyone in a, in a, a cassock or some kind of religious uniform to, to tell you it. Just look at it and, and consider it and on the, the grounds of reason. Does it make sense or, or doesn't it? And I think it does stand up. Andrew, this has been a fascinating discussion and uh, I, I really want to thank you for your time. This uh, continues to be one of my favorite topics and uh, I've learned a lot from talking to you tonight. I want to also draw people's attention to the website lightoftheshroud.com where they can learn more about you and uh, some of your essays on the shroud and uh, what, uh, what are you working on next? I know you have these conferences coming up in May. That's right. Um, so, um, well, I'm, I'm, it was, it's, a, it's a work in, in progress. I'm, I'm, I'm writing all the time and um, sort of expanding on, on these themes, really, and uh, about the, the shroud and about the, the arguments about the nature of free will and so on. So... Um, yeah, I, probably we'll, I'll update it as time goes on on, on the, the website. Yeah. Well, terrific work, and um, I look forward to speaking with you again down the road. Me too. It's been great Thank talking you. to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy Resurrection. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. And look what the cat dragged in. Sitting across from me is an old friend, and it's been uh, quite a while. Jeez, I think. I don't think uh, we've actually met in the flesh, and I, I mean that in in, uh, in in a very respectful way, <laughs> since, what, probably February. Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications News Network. How are you, Victor? Just fine, Richard, and it's great to be back, and uh, meeting you in this way is just an absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> we are fully clothed, of ladies course, and gentlemen. Of course, yes, we are. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. Here we are on uh, Easter Sunday. And um, when I say, when I think of the uh, the light of Jerusalem, I think of something entirely different. I think of the whole, as an Orthodox Christian, the, the holy light, uh, which is a miracle that plays out every year in Jerusalem uh, at the, uh, the, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre mm-hmm. in, Ju- in Jerusalem, where this candle is mysteriously lit and makes its way across the uh, primarily the orthodox christian world uh and but tonight we're going to talk about a light in jerusalem of an entirely different matter this this goes back to uh, to early february uh, for those not familiar with with what happened fill us in well basically it was uh, a light of some kind that uh, began i think michael will be able to fill us in completely a little bit more but it began up high in the air and then uh, it somehow moved down over the a dome in jerusalem itself the, and uh, it it moved in a very specific way it dropped straight down and as it it did that it um, got very very close to the to the pinnacle of the dome and it became very luminescent. Uh, it lit up, if, if you look at a couple of the videos, it lit up a large area in the square surrounding the uh, the dome and then shot straight back up in the air again. And uh, the videos, from my understanding it, uh, it, of it all, is that there are many different, several different uh, angles at which this, uh, this light was, was captured on video. And that's the whole perplexing part of this particular uh, UFO uh, sighting event. We have it captured from several different angles, from several different people. And that's what's really perplexing everyone. And then added on to that, there is another new segment of the video that we can talk about this evening that actually shows the craft. And when you look at it, it almost looks too good to be true, Richard. Oh, you mentioned Michael. So let's bring in Dr. Michael Sala, a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the political study of the key actors, institutions, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life. He is an internationally recognized scholar in international politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy, and is the author-editor of uh, a number of books, including The Hero's Journey Toward a Second American Century, Essays on Peace, Why the Cold War Ended, and uh, he is, as I say, the founder of the Exopolitics Institute and the Exopolitics Journal. Dr. Michael Sala, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Aloha, Richard and... uh Victor, it's a pleasure to be back here. The uh, the uh, the video, uh, which you know uh, w- people are familiar with the term something going viral. This is certainly qualifies. Uh, uh, this really has captured uh, worldwide attention. Going back to uh, early February, I believe it was Saturday, February the second of this year, uh, when this uh, uh, light was seen um, over the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. 
The, the problem well, I have is when you look at, Victor said, you know, the video, you look at the video, it does look almost too good to be true. What are your thoughts? Well, the, the, the important thing to keep in mind, uh, Richard, is that there are several really videos that are out there. The very first two videos, one was uh, filmed by a Russian um, uh, who was present when he when it was filmed uh, by the name of Aligal, and uh, and another video that uh, whose name we don't know uh, who took it. But those two videos were of an object basically uh, descending over the dome of the rock in Jerusalem, hovering for about uh, just over 20 seconds, and then shooting up in uh, in, a, in a flash of light, uh, which was an incredible sighting. And of course, as you said, it got a lot of attention. Uh, on the internet and in, and in Israel in particular, and then there were, then that was followed by another two videos, and and that's when you have the issue uh, that comes up, which is um, the possibility that certain videos may be faked to try to discredit the original videos, which were genuine, and that very last video that's just come out, which is uh, a video that just runs for uh, a few minutes or three minutes basically. Of uh, a very of a close up of a UFO over the dome of the rock, and, that, and as uh, Victor was saying, it's almost too good to be true. Um, that video, I think, now having looked at the whole thing, I think that one is also a fake. Ah, but, interesting. But basically, what you have is the very first two videos, which I think are genuine, and then you have a succession of fakes afterwards to discredit the the original um, videos. Why would someone? feel the need to uh, create uh, a, a fake video? I mean, I understand, you know, why, but I mean, in this particular case, uh, who would be, who would be uh, orchestrating uh, this, uh, this video in order to discredit the previous ones? Well, it's, it's always that question of, you know, qui bono, who, who benefits? And it's those that are behind the secrecy, those that rely on the public being kind of confused and uncertain about the reality of the extraterrestrial phenomenon and not willing to disclose what really has been happening for over 60 years now. So when you have some something genuine, something that has the potential to awaken a lot of people to a larger extraterrestrial reality that has been occurring for over six decades, um, you know, then you do have to ask the question, well, um, is this just really the, the same people behind the, the, the cover-up all these years that are now orchestrating for these fake videos to come out to discredit the two genuine uh, videos that came out first? I think, I think the, uh, the point here, Michael, that, that we're making, too, is that um, in my experience, in our experience, in, in the work that, uh, that you and I have done in the past, it's almost as if there is a very, very um, coalesced and orchestrated uh, effort by some group of people beyond me who they are, but uh, as soon as something of any kind of substance comes out that looks to be have, uh, have any kind of credibility to it, it's almost as if whoever these people are, whether they're a you know, concerted group that they know each other or they have p- specific assignments to do that, they jump all over it, and um, within weeks they have something that's put out there that completely discredits this. Now, it, do you think that this is... And I, would, I do want to talk about the lights a little bit more because there is some very fascinating information about the actual data. But your comment on whether or not or how concerted is the orchestration uh, of this type of thing when something real comes out, in your estimation? 
Well, it has been happening for a long time now. Um, you can go back to the 1953 uh, Robinson panel and the, and the Durant report, which, which basically recommended discrediting reports of flying saucers because of these were deemed to be a threat to national security insofar as the population might get too excited about, about them and offer the opportunity for you know, external actors or international actors to take advantage of a confused or a panicky public. And so you know, this is something that uh, has been going on ever since, that I think any time you have anything that is genuine, anything that might awaken people to this reality, uh, you do have these efforts by these agencies to discredit the whole affair by just concocting, uh, you know, whether it's uh, fabricated um, video or photos or fabricated whistleblower testimonies. I mean, that happens as well. You know, I think there are an assortment of tools that are available to basically create sufficient confusion and uncertainty over genuine information so that um, so that people looking at this field eventually will kind of give up and in exasperation say, well, I can't make sense of it and, uh, you know, it's a very unpleasant environment to work in. Well, we will try to make sense of it when we come back. Dr. Michael Sala, Victor Vigiani in studio uh, here on The Conspiracy Show. On the other side, we'll uh, continue to delve into uh, lights over Jerusalem back in February and also exploding UFOs and alien landings in secret FBI files. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show on AM740. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. And for those uh, just joining us, we're discussing the what some are calling the Dome of the Rock Jerusalem Light. And uh, many uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people, if not millions, have now seen the video showing a shining ball of light hovering above a Jerusalem shrine. And for some, this may finally be the proof that aliens exist. And there are a number of, uh, of, of videos. The latest uh, almost seems too good to be true. That could be a hoax, part of some sort of disinformation uh, campaign. In studio, Victor Vigiani, news director from Zeland Communications News Network. Dr. Michael Sala, the founder of the Exopolitics Institute. And joining us uh, via Skype from her home in Boulder, Colorado, uh, UFO journalist and uh, the author of the recently released Exopolitics Stargate to a New Reality, Paula Harris. Welcome aboard, Paula. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Let me get your take on the uh, the most recent video of the uh, the light in Jerusalem, this orb. Do you, uh, do you think, uh, as Dr. Michael Sala uh, does, that this may be a, a hoax? Yes. Uh, can I tell you how how usually this whole thing works? Uh, usually the first couple of videos, and, and, the, and I did research this, I did get hold of Barry Shamish in Israel, he is a UFO researcher, he said to me the first thing, he says, you people don't understand Israeli, so how in the world did you, did you count the first ones a hoax when you don't know what the guy was saying, which he's absolutely right, you have to get hold of the people in Israel. Uh, the first couple could be real, and then because the first one was, you know, the Israeli uh, 
video, and then there was the tourists from Mississippi who, who filmed the same thing. But the last one, I unfortunately, because this is the way it all works, could be CGI. It's too good to be too, it's too close. Whoever was there was there at the right time and right place. So this is purely opinion as far as the last video. But as far as the first two videos, and I think that MUFON also is agreeing with this, uh, they, they are proven to be, you know, surprised. It's a surprise for the Israeli, uh, the two Israeli people that were doing the filming. Assuming the first two videos uh, that we've seen, or the versions uh, from different angles, are, are legitimate, what are we to make of the significance of, of the timing and the location of this sighting? And I'll throw this out to Victor, uh, Michael, and Paula. So anyone, just chime in. Well, I think uh, one of the, the measures of how it was was that very shortly after that Jerusalem sighting, on, on January 28th is when the, the first sighting occurred, um, was filmed that you actually had Hillary Clinton uh, convening or deciding to convene for the very first time uh, all 260 from around the world to actually assemble in Washington, D.C. for a one-week confab to basically discuss um, international politics and, and the latest developments. And I, I think there's probably a connection between what happened there and also what happened in Saudi Arabia as well at the same time when there was that business, uh, world business leaders were basically given an informal briefing about flying sources. So uh, I think uh, basically the uh, diplomatic community were, were getting ready for some kind of in that field. Victor? Well, I, I tend to kind of uh, go along with what Michael is saying, it, and I know Paula um, has uh, written a book called Connecting the Dots. It's one of, I think it's one of your first efforts, if I'm not mistaken, Paula. But if you look at this whole uh, series of incidents and you begin connecting the dots, and I, I agree with what Paula was saying earlier about the first couple of videos being rather substantive in, in nature, just because of the nature of the, of the way the videos were taken, who took them, and just what they look like. Uh, usually these videos are pretty raw, and there's, there's not uh, a whole lot of sophistication to them, and that's the first thing we look at. And the only thing that I would uh, want to throw out is that what kind of um, overall investigation or analysis of the first two um, uh, videos was done, either by MUFON or about, by outside agencies, as to the validity of what the two first videos really actually look like in terms of what the real data uh, about these things uh, would indicate the reality of it. That, to me, is a, a big question mark. Uh, the other thing about the conferences um, that, that, that Michael was alluding to and Hillary Clinton calling 260 ambassadors back to Washington, to me, is another dot that has to be connected also. So a series of events that happens like this, very rarely do you get this kind of um, sequential domino effect to, to one um, UFO sighting. Uh, it seems to be rather co uh, not too coincidental that this is happening in the way that it has. Uh, Paula, any thoughts on the timing and the location of the sighting? I think that exactly what Victor said, you have to connect the dots. That means you have to do your homework. If we begin in January with this kind of sighting in Israel, and it's real, of course they're, they're going to do everything to debunk it. You can't control the social media. You cannot control somebody putting something on YouTube. It's damage control if it's real. Anymore, Richard, I'm wondering what we're going to say is, is, is everything a hoax? I mean, is that what we're going to do from now on? Because if this is sincere, and it was done by the Israeli people, the two guys that, that did the first one, 
they went to a lot of trouble to do damage control. And I agree 100% with Michael Sala as far as the meeting in Saudi Arabia. There was also a meeting in Chicago. I don't know if he's mentioned this. The Muslim Brotherhood under Minister Fargan had gotten together with Roger Lear, Jaime Maussan. He had invited Nick Pope and Stanton Friedman for this meeting. It was in February, around February 26th to talk about UFOs, what are the, what's the Arab nation doing getting interested in UFOs? And what does that have to do with world Middle Eastern politics? These are the questions we need to ask. I'm going to add one more thing. I did interview Don Schmidt, who was at that meeting with Farragon, and, and he, is, he, he did an, an excellent interview for me. It's on my website where this minister of the Muslim Brotherhood offered these researchers money for their research. I think that's real significant. All right. If, if in fact, uh, this final version that we've seen, or the latest version, is a hoax, then if it's to be effective, then I, I guess what we need to watch for in the next, uh, in the coming days or weeks is someone to come out and proclaim it as such. Uh, and uh, then, that, you know, that'll be kicking the, the one-point conversion on the touchdown as far as they're concerned. And they can, then they can pronounce, you see, it was a hoax, so the other two were a hoax. I, I guess that's what we have to wait for, right? That announcement. But the problem is everything's going to be a hoax. Almost everything that has come out has been a questionable, and it's not us. It's not the researchers that are doing this. It's the debunkers, and it's our own field that cannot agree on, and they haven't gone to the place or talked to the witnesses or done their homework on the field. So everything that you're going to see from now on, and like Stephenville, is going to be called a hoax. Indeed. It's it's just a, a, a massive confusion, and, and, uh, and people... Uh, are, are I sense poised to just start throwing our hands up, saying, "Well, I don't know which way to turn now." Listen, when we come back, let's let's find out uh, what your your take is on this uh, uh, HOTL uh, memo. Is this in fact a hoax? Another uh, disinformation campaign. We'll discuss exploding UFOs and alien landings in the secret FBI files. Uh, Paula Harris in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Michael Sala on the line as well, and in studio Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications News Network. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to our Easter a Sunday edition of The Conspiracy Show and our UFO panel in the studio, Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications News Network. On the line from Boulder, Colorado is Paula Harris. Her new book is Exopolitics, Stargate to a New Reality and Dr. Michael Sala, a founder of the Exopolitics Institute. Uh, let, me, uh, let me start with you, Victor. Your take on the, um, the release of these secret FBI files uh, supposedly detailing how U.S. officials saw, uh, one, a UFO explode over Utah, and uh, second, uh, alien bodies uh, in, a, um, in a UFO crash in New Mexico back in 1949-50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult question. It's, it's very similar to what we were talking about earlier with regards to the Jerusalem sighting. Uh, because the Internet has 
allowed us to procure information in such an easy way these days. All you have to do is turn your computer on, type in a few characters in a search engine, and whammo, you've got information right at your fingertips. And that um, seeking out of information in that way has become very, very easy for everyone to do. Be they researchers, be they the neophyte, be they just people, you know, surfing on their uh, on their computer on a daily basis, whatever it might be. The acquisition of information has become far too easy. People don't have to dig anymore for information. So when the FBI sends out files like this, uh, and uh, we went through this with the, the first release of information from the United Kingdom when they dumped uh, several thousand files onto the, into the public domain. Everybody ran for the streets or their computers, whatever, and they started seeking out the information. And when you look at the information on the UK files, it's like reading the telephone book. There's absolutely very, very little there other than just very, very mundane reports. You have to dig really deep. And I went through personally, um, I, I stopped counting after 2,300 files of reading them. And then I moved on to the Canadian files where the, the Canadian government dumped 7,500 files on, in the public domain without telling anybody. I went through about 4,000 of those before I fell asleep very quickly over many, many nights. And it, it, it just shows you when you give people that kind of information, you have to dig really deep. And out of the Canadian files, I came up with five excellent, irrefutable files. Now, I haven't been through all of the FBI files yet, but I would seek to imagine that you just might find one or two documents within that that's going to be very, very specific and very, very telling about what the FBI is doing about this. So among all the files, you're going to have some really good stuff, but you've got to look for it. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the 1950 statement uh, included in this release from Special Agent Guy Hottle. Uh, which seems on the surface to provide evidence, the theory that um, aliens crashed uh, in, in New Mexico, although the, are they talking about Roswell? Are they talking about Aztec? I'm not sure. But in the memo, Agent Hottle said three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. He wrote that the flying saucers were, quote, described as being circular in shape with raised centers approximately 50 feet in diameter. And then uh, he, he, he goes on to say that each saucer was occupied by three bodies of human shape but only three feet tall dressed in metallic cloth of a very fine texture each body was bandaged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and test pilots and these and this memo was sent on to uh, FBI director Hoover so uh, Michael uh, uh, let me get your take on on uh, let's talk about the hotel uh, the memo well, the first thing to keep in mind is that the Hotel Memo itself was first released in 1977. So what's news now is that the media have latched on just because there has been this new vault uh, database created by the FBI to house um, documents that had been earlier released by Freedom of Information. So the Hotel document itself is, is genuine. It's a, it's, a, it's a memo, as you described. And one of the important things to keep in mind here is that it was directed from a, from a special agent to the director of the FBI, and in that, the special agent refers to uh, an Air Force investigator who gave him this information about three flying saucer crashes, as, as you described. And what is important here is that a special agent would not relate information to the director of the FBI unless he was pretty sure that this information was, was genuine. I mean, he wouldn't relay spurious or flippant information from a hoax. And, see, and one of the things is that a 
few people have kind of jumped up and down on the hot tail moon moment and say, oh, well, it's basically reporting a hoax. Well, I mean, the thing is, that's just subjective. That's just someone's opinion that it may be uh, reporting on uh, data that was relayed to the, to the special agent, which might not be accurate, but then no one knows that, for sure, from the memo itself. But there have been those that have said, well, the hotel memo is, is a hoax based on the Aztec sighting, which, which some say is, is a hoax. But then the, the memo itself doesn't specifically go into detail as to which crash it's referring to. But nevertheless, I would basically say that because the special agent was reporting to the director of the FBI, that he was pretty confident that this information was accurate. And I don't, I don't think he would have put it in the memo to the, to the director if he didn't believe it was accurate. Paula, what crash do you think he's referring to here? Is it Aztec or Roswell? Well, there's more than Aztec or Roswell. I just finished 1945 San Antonio crash where the two witnesses are still alive and they have pieces of metal. This is on my website. So that happened in August of 1945, two years before Roswell. So it could be referring to the San Antonio crash, to the plains of St. Augustine, to Aztec and Roswell. But let me add one thing. I agree with Michael 100% on this. This is a special agent of the Air Force. Remember, there was no Air Force in 1947. It was Army Air Force. So maybe he did the right thing by reporting to J. Edgar Hoover. He could have heard that there were three occupants in each craft, but maybe in the Roswell case, there were more because there are testimonies that there were more than three. So we're not sure because it is not detailed, but the fact that it is on the FBI website, because I got calls from Italy on this, they said to me, it's in the news in Italy. It's on the evening news all the time. It's on the FBI website, Paula, so it must be real. The difference between Europe and America is that Europe covered this. What's confusing to me is, and I'll get all of your feedback on this before we, uh, we close our conversation. If, for example, we have this apparatus in place that is going to go to a great deal of trouble to discredit, say, the, uh, the, the UFO sighting in Jerusalem by creating uh, this, uh, this most recent video, uh, why would the FBI then seemingly undo that, uh, that type of uh, effort by releasing this kind of information? Well, I can just, let me just jump in right there, and just my two cents worth is that if this effort that the FBI has put onto the plate of the general public, uh, as Michael said, a lot of this stuff has been around for a lot of years, and this new vault that they have out is sort of a reframing of some pretty old stuff, and whoever is orchestrating this kind of um, initiative to put this kind of information out into the easily accessible uh, land of the Internet... Uh, what I think that the people who are um, orchestrating all this are really doing is they're throwing the bones out. They're throwing really tasty little tidbits of information out, and they just want to see what kind of reaction they get. And they'll get a couple of reactions from the neophytes. Oh, that's very interesting. And then they can almost count on 
the people within the UFO research community taking on these issues and fighting among themselves about the reality of it or the non-reality of the whole issue. So you get the debunkers and even people within the UFO community fighting among themselves about disagreements here, disagreements of dates, the format. I've actually read some stuff that this memo doesn't conform to the absolute um, uh, single format that the FBI has in terms of margins and the way paragraphs are broken up. So you get all kinds of different perspectives that automatically, like the videos, bang, snap your fingers, it's, it loses its credibility. And I think they almost count on that kind of infighting and that kind of uh, disfiguring or reconfiguration of the information to cast doubt on everything. Uh, Michael, is it possible that what we're seeing here is uh, uh, just behind the curtain, this ongoing battle between the the pro-disclosure elements uh, in, in uh, you know, the unelected oligarchy and the, the, um, the anti-disclosure movement? I, I would agree with Victor that there is some effort uh, behind the scenes to put out this information in a way that's going to get public attention. But I would also say that there's an element where the public or the, the, the mass consciousness has risen to the point where this stuff is now news, genuine news. And, and you look at, say, someone like Edgar Mitchell. In 1997, he was saying things that about Roswell being a, a cover-up and the secret government uh, having information about flying sources and extraterrestrial life, but no one really paid any attention. In 2007, 10 years later, he, he was saying pretty much the same thing, and it became a media frenzy. So I think we're kind of reaching that same point now where stuff that was released 10, 20, 30 years ago using these old Freedom of Information Act requests, all of a sudden on a new database, on an official government website, becomes the news and it becomes a sensation. And, and I think part of that is also due to the fact that the mass consciousness is ready for it. Final word to you on this, Paula. Well, I agree with Michael on this because this memo is not new, but the fact that it's released, uh, as a journalist, I would ask, why now? Uh, why now for a lot of things? Because the timing is so important in this. I always wonder as a journalist, is something coming down? Uh, for instance, the Vatican pronouncements, is something coming down? Are they preparing for something? And I think that it's such a confusion in the field because there, a lot of the debunkers of this material are our own people, are our own researchers, and it becomes a mass confusion. So I'm so glad you're covering this material, but this is this the fact that it's on the FBI website, the fact that it's coming out now, we have to ask why. All right, uh, Paula, thank you as always for your time. And again, uh, the book Exopolitics Stargate to a New Reality, is that available uh, to book buyers? Oh, yeah, it's on Amazon and on Author House. Terrific. Congratulations. Dr. Michael Sala, thank you as always. Um, any projects uh, forthcoming that we should uh, you'd like to mention? I'm just working on uh, getting the Exo News website up and uh, getting the next edition of the Exo Politics Journal out there. And you find out more at the uh, exopoliticsinstitute.org website. Exopoliticsinstitute.org. Thank you, Dr. Sala. And uh, as always, uh, Victor... Um, you're going to stick around, and we're going to, uh, as always, thank you, but you're going to stick around, and we'll uh, chat with Peter Davenport here uh, in uh, just a few moments. So stay with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? 
This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Peter Davenport has been director of the National UFO Reporting Center since 1994, and he reports UFO sightings uh, regularly on a number of radio programs. We're happy to have him back here on The uh, Conspiracy Show. In addition to being the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Peter has served as the director of investigations for the Washington chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. And in 1986, he was a candidate for the Washington State Legislature. And in 1992, he was a candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Peter Davenport, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, and thank you so much for the invitation to appear again. It's been a long time since I've been on this program. Very pleased to be back. Well, we have to do something about that, and we're going to have you back uh, on more regularly. That will be my my solemn oath to you, Peter. Uh, Say hello to uh, Victor Vigiani in studio. Hi, Victor, and thank you for all your recent emails. You're welcome, Peter. It's just great to be in touch with you, and a person who has the resources at the fingertips the way you do is uh, someone that we have to keep in communication with. Boy, I, if I had known what uh, running a UFO hotline was going to be like back in 1994 when I took over responsibility for this, uh, it would have been fascinating, but I think I would have turned my back on the generous offer from the former uh, director. It's been quite an experience. You're right, Victor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, remarkable. Well, let's talk about the recent spate of um, going back to, to last summer. Uh, of these red, orange, and yellow fireballs that that uh, that, yes. that people are reporting, and and uh, uh, what is it the, uh, afoot here, Peter? Yeah, I wish I could answer that question definitively, but to be honest with you and our listeners tonight, I rarely, if ever, know what I'm dealing with. Uh, but you're right. Going back to June of 2010. I started being inundated with reports of red, orange, or yellow fireballs or lights, and all of, all across the country, all across Canada, all across Europe. Now, I have addressed this issue on various UFO forums, and I've taken a great deal of heat from people who say, oh, they're just Chinese lanterns, these pyrotechnic devices that some people will light and uh, release from parties, for example. But I don't think so. They're reported as individual lights, as pairs, trips, quads, up to 50 lights, and they do not behave like uh, pyrotechnic devices that are just drifting with uh, with the wind. I don't know what they are, but they are very, very interesting to me, and by all measure, I don't think they should be there. In fact, I'm looking to our listeners to submit reports if they see any of these things, and maybe that will help us try to explain them. Well, you're also here to deliver, I guess, sort of a message to uh, to those uh, witnesses uh, on the need to file or submit written reports rather than just oral reports by telephone. Uh, tell us a little bit more what you'd like from witnesses. Yeah, and thank you for raising that issue. Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to talk to a lot of people, some of whom may have witnessed UFOs in their past or may witness them in the future, but I take the position that the only kind of report that counts, the only kind of report that I can do anything with is a written report, a detailed written description of what the person saw, where they were, what direction they were looking, what the time and date were, and so on and so forth. 
And what I ask people to do, if they believe they may have been witness to a UFO, is to write it all down, bearing in mind that the only thing another person will ever know about that sighting depends entirely on what the witness chooses to write about it, and then submit a report using our online report form at ufocenter.com. If people will do that, uh, we just post all of those reports. I think that may be the unique feature of the National UFO Reporting Center relative to other organizations is every report we receive, we post. So if people submit their reports, it will be posted to our database and people will be made available, uh, will be made, will be apprised of what that witness has seen. Peter, when, when you do collect these reports, and I know that uh, in looking at your site, there is just, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands of reports that are out there dating, you know, way back in history into the current reports. And it must get uh, rather frustrating or challenging for you to take these reports uh, on and on and uh, get them up onto the website. Let me ask you, how do you make the transition from collecting reports uh, of this nature, some very specific and interesting and others rather mundane, how do you make the transition from um, looking at these reports and making sense of them and then, uh, I guess, leaping into the political or the geopolitical implications of what you're collecting and what it means? I mean, I know that's a big transition, is a differentiation in the, in the jobs, but how do you make that transition? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess my response is I spend virtually every waking hour either working at the uh, center here, the National UFO Reporting Center, or ruminating on just what it is I am collecting. What is the significance of this data? And I wish I had an answer. I don't yet. I think it's coming to a head, and before too long, we may have an answer to all of this. But clearly, if our planet is being visited by intelligent creatures who have come from distant parts of our galaxy, if, they're, if they've come from another galaxy, I will be impressed indeed. But uh, I probably make that transition that you allude to many times a day, looking at a case trying to figure out whether the government would have been apprised of it through radar or satellites or one thing or another, and what their position might be with respect to that sighting. There are a lot of very, very uh, graphic examples. One was the Stephenville case, January 8, 2008, down in Texas. Uh, the significance of that is clearly people saw something that was not from this planet, and it was in proximity to the President of the United States. Clearly, the U.S. government must be taking this phenomenon quite seriously, and that is made evident by the fact that that object, when it was last seen by witnesses south of Stephenville, was being pursued by two F-16 fighters. So I'm satisfied we're dealing with a real phenomenon I dare say I'm not telling you or our listeners tonight anything new on that point, but uh, clearly the government must be interested in this phenomenon. They could not afford to not be interested in it. Uh, if these objects were to land in another country and share their technology with another government, say Libya or some unfortunate spot on Earth, it would serve potentially to neutralize all of the defensive systems we have. So I guess uh, I haven't, I've 
beat a, beating around the bush here with your question. Well, not really. No, you're not. No, no. I I yeah. struggle with that question all the day, all the all the time, every day. What are we dealing with? And it appears to be real. It appears to be something not from this planet. And I'm struggling with the political significance of it. It's going to be profound when uh, the world's human population awakens to the fact that we are being visited by intelligent creatures. Uh, Peter, uh, we're talking with uh, Peter Davenport, uh, uh, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, when Are you able to break down the, uh, the uh, percentage of witnesses that fit into various categories, for example, um, uh, military or ex-military, commercial airline pilots, uh, let's say, I don't know, law enforcement, uh, amateur astronomers, that, that type of thing? And, and can you give us some insight into, into, um, into that, if you have that data? Well, it's a very good question, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to quantify any kind of response, because oftentimes people elect not to identify themselves, and the more responsible the position they occupy, say, as a college professor or a government employee or a military pilot, the more apt they are to remain anonymous. So it makes it very difficult to break all of our reports down into tight categories. I think the only thing I would be able to say in response to your question is we get many reports from astronomers, both professional and amateur, people who build their own telescopes, for example. I would categorize as amateur astronomers, even though they're every bit as skilled as somebody who teaches astronomy at a university. We get many reports from airline pilots. Uh, a couple of the reports on our homepage are examples of that. The object that was seen by a commercial uh, flight crew over eastern New York State on the 11th of January this year, they went sailing by it. It was about 4,000 feet above them, and it was hum- see, appeared to be hovering motionless. Uh, many reports from government employees, uh, many reports from military pilots, most of them ex-military pilots. I think most of the current military pilots realize that they're expected not to report these things. That is an interesting phenomenon. But beyond that, uh, I don't think I can put percentages on these various categories. All right, uh, Peter, stay put. We'll come back. And uh, I, I mentioned ex-military. We had the case of a retired sea captain, of course, reporting a triangle, a, a triangle UFO uh, over Fort Bragg, California, back in in March. We'll touch on that. And a, another fireball, huge fireball, seen by uh, many people here closer to home in Ontario, going back to uh, 1995. And a, oh, yeah. a rather reticent cameraman in Windsor who has footage he will not release. We'll talk about that as well. Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, on the phone and in studio. Victor Vigiani, news director from Zeland Communications News Network. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show on AM740 Zuma Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to the Easter Sunday edition of The Conspiracy Show. On the line, Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Victor Vigiani in studio, the news director from the Zeland Communications News Network. 
And, uh, you know, here we have, we, we, we talk about the credibility, the reliability of witnesses, for example. And here we have a, uh, a cum laude graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, New York, uh, a retired sea captain reporting on this uh, triangular UFO uh, craft seen ejecting an object uh, back in, in, in March uh, of this year. Uh, your, your thoughts on that, Peter? It's an excellent case, and I'm pleased to have an opportunity to talk about it. The witness, in my judgment, was superlative in the sense that he had very, very strong technical background, trained as an engineer, as I recall, uh, had spent many, many years at sea, 20 years as a sea captain, and very sober-minded man who was at his home at Fort Bragg, uh, California, north of San Francisco a ways, and he saw a very, very bizarre object, which at first he thought was perhaps a commercial airliner. He lives right under a departure uh, path for airliners leaving the San Francisco area headed for Japan. He very quickly realized that it was nothing like a commercial airliner. And as you said, it, uh, he had very good vision. He saw it apparently expel an object. I'm going on memory now, but that object dropped straight down, as I recall, and he was flabbergasted by it. Uh, I could hear just a faint hint of bafflement in his voice when he first called. It was an excellent, excellent case and a very high-quality, credible witness. The part that you described of the object dropping something out of it, I have seen several over the last three weeks. I've been doing a little bit of work on, on some of the the the, the more classic. Um, I guess you call them just balls of light that appear. Uh, some of them in Mexico. There's been uh, uh, reports of them in Japan. And what seems to be happening is that you would get an object, uh, and this happened too, I believe, um, with the incident in 1976. Uh, I think someplace in Saudi Arabia where the F-4 chased uh, another object where you get a situation oh, yeah. where a larger yeah, a larger craft will drop something straight down from it and it will go down oh, any numbers of thousands of feet and either hover or go back up into the object itself. Um, how, oh, preval yeah. how prevalent is that in the things that you re uh, record and was this the case in the, in the Fort Bragg instance? Uh, it was the case that the object went down. Whether it went up or not, I cannot say. Mm -hmm. I guess we have to allow for the possibility that the object that allegedly was released fell and uh, may have extinguished or shot off and maybe joined up with the original craft at a later time. That's pure conjecture. Uh, I don't know what happened there. I didn't see it, of course. I only received the report from an, a very good witness. But it leads us into the case that you alluded to before the break, uh, Victor, and uh, or, or I guess it's Richard who's speaking. I, I apologize. It's the case of the fireball that went across Ontario on the 25th of August, 1995. In that case, not only did an object shoot up to the object that streaked overhead, I mean literally thousands of people saw that object, but a tiny little object was captured by a television news cameraman shooting up apparently from ground level to the object as it streaked over central Ontario headed south. So I guess in response to your question, I have to say that I have received both types of reports, reports in which objects are shooting down to the ground 
and cases in which objects rise from the ground level, much more interesting, I think, Mm -hmm. rise from ground level and apparently rise up and join with an object passing overhead. Going back to the 95 uh, fireball that you just mentioned, uh, there was a Channel 4 news uh, cameraman in Windsor who has that object on tape, and he has steadfastly refused to share the tape with anyone, including the, the Peter Jennings ABC special on UFOs, yes. which aired Isn't back in... is that interesting? <laughs> What's going on there? Yes. Well, I'll tell you a little story of how I came to obtain that tape. I have a copy of it. And <clears throat> it was taken by a news cameraman. It was 40 minutes past midnight. It was on a Friday morning. It was, the, again, the 25th of August, 1995. I know all of this because I was just deluged, buried, with reports from Pennsylvania, from Ohio, from New York, from Connecticut, from all over the northeastern quadrant of the United States. To the best of my knowledge, uh, none from Canada. But I posted these reports. I found it very interesting, and I played the audio clips from people who had had this object go directly overhead. Uh, Some people claimed that it turned them blue. It turned their whole neighborhood blue as it passed overhead relatively slowly. Well, about three years after the incident, this was now October of 1998, three years after the incident, 38 months actually, I got a telephone call from a UFO investigator in Texas. Her name is Amy Bear, And she said, Peter, uh, I'm calling to inquire whether you've had any reports of a dramatic fireball that occurred over Ontario and perhaps Pennsylvania. I knew immediately what she was talking about. And I said, yes, uh, I think I know exactly what you're talking about, Amy. And she said, well, what do you think of the video? (laughs) And I said, video? How did you get video? And she said, well, I was in Texas. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And there was a clip, a brief clip. It could have been on CNN, although I don't remember the station. And she said they were announcing that somebody had captured a UFO on videotape, and they would be playing the footage. Well, she prepared her tape recorder, and she just happened to catch the footage. I played it down at the Ozark UFO conference uh, eight days ago, Saturday of last week, and uh, it is very, very dramatic. And it shows unambiguously an object that shot up, apparently from ground level, I don't know where it started from, but it clearly is going straight up to join with this object that is streaking overhead. I remember the reports from that time period, and people claimed that what that object was that went up was a rocket, an anti-aircraft rocket that had been shot by the Canadian uh, defense establishment as the object went over. I seriously doubt those reports because it was the object, the main object, that streaked over Ontario, going to the south-southeast. I think it went over Lake Erie and down the west end of Pennsylvania. Uh, was visible to most people for only a matter of 5 or 10, maybe 15 seconds at most. And that does not give any defense establishment uh, sufficient time to identify a target, to determine that it is hostile, that uh, to get permission to shoot munitions at it, and so on and so forth. So 
so I suspect that the account is bogus, as many accounts are in the field of ufology, regrettably. What the object was, I have no idea, but it certainly was not an airliner going down to Buffalo, New York, or anything along those lines. Very, very interesting case. The last point I would like to make on it, I have discovered from Canadians that in discussing this case that many of the astronomers from Ontario, particularly from uh, the University of Western Ontario, claim ardently that, well, it had to be a meteor. Well, I don't think so. And everyone I've shown that, shown that tape to agrees with me that it could not have been a meteor. Very, very interesting case. And if any of our listeners may have been witness to that event, I would uh, give my eye teeth to get them to submit just a short report, one or two or three paragraphs, describing what they saw that night. Maybe, you know, that that uh, particular case, I'm trying to think, back in uh, August of 1995, I was immersed in the what I call the workaday reality of um, in a producing talk radio, current affairs, you know, city council meetings, provincial budgets, that mundane stuff, uh, and not well, and not part of the uh, the, the UFO uh, consciousness. So, uh, to me, I mean, this could be our Stephenville Lights, uh, Victor. You know, this story has not been given the kind of attention it deserves. No, you're right. And the, the kind of thing that Peter's talking about, it's it's rather fascinating to me that a lot of these incidents, I know Peter will bear this out with me, that it'll get on to, doesn't matter how intrusive, what kind of sighting, it could be a great sighting, it could be a mundane sighting, it could be anything in the middle. It always seems to make the local news. It might be printed in the newspaper. It might be, uh, you know, a local affiliate of, uh, you know, the CBC or down in, in the states, one of the local NBC or CBS or ABC affiliates. But it never seems to make the big 60 minutes, the Datelines, the ABC News at uh, at six o'clock. There seems to be a glass ceiling sort of erected that none of this information seeps through. Although, if you take a look at what Peter's reporting, they are of national security importance. Anything that intrudes into the airspace that doesn't have a transponder, and it's an unauthorized vehicle, this is a national security issue. And the United States government and its Air Force continues to lie through their teeth that this is not a national security issue. And these kinds of things that come forward on the local news, they inform, you know, a small number of people in a small community, but they never latch on to the large news media. So there's this glass ceiling that's there. And you're right, uh, it just it stops right there. And why? I don't... Perhaps it's the same reason that it stops because of uh, what Michael Sala and Paula Harris alluded to before, the toolkit that people have to orchestrate the confusion within the UFO community. I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Well, this case in 90... No. This fireball, uh, you know, so-called fireball in 95, wh why don't we do a show on this? We'll, we'll bring you back on, Peter. We'll, uh, we'll try and... Um, we won't try. We will promote it heavily so that people who may have seen it will be prepared to call in, contribute. I mean, I, I, I'm serious. I think this this could have been our Phoenix Lights right here in our own backyard, and it went completely unreported. Well, I'm more than willing to give out my email address uh, and my telephone number, and I know Peter would be more than willing to do the same thing if there are any people out there listening that really would like to contribute, either specifically with a name or even anonymously. I am more than open to that 
suggestion, uh, Richard. Well, why don't we take some time and do this right? We'll we'll time it so that it falls on the anniversary or thereabouts. Uh, so later, in, you know, in the summer, August of this year, we will uh, commit some airtime and we'll 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 focus on the 1995 incident here in in Ontario. Would you be good to, for that, uh, Peter? That sounds very exciting. I have a number of very dramatic audio clips of what people had to report literally within five minutes of having had this object go directly over their heads. And, <coughs> excuse me, some people actually heard a very strange sound emanating from it. One woman in Niles, Ohio, which is out east of Cleveland, uh, saw the object for about 15 seconds, and it turned her whole neighborhood blue. It appeared to be hovering motionless. That clearly is not not a meteor. I would love to do that. We could play some of these audio clips, and uh, I could put the... I'm planning to put that video on our uh, website. I've hesitated to do so, and it goes back to a point that you made earlier, Richard. The Channel 4 in Windsor, Ontario, for the longest time refused to allow the tape to be played. Then they were purchased by apparently a larger station. I don't know what station it is. You gentlemen would probably know the answer to that question sooner than I. But it raises the question, in my opinion, as to whether the UFO phenomenon is so important to governments that they would move to purchase a television station in order to quash very precious UFO video that they may have on file. This is really, really very dramatic video. Well, we'll, uh, we'll commit to do, to do just that then on, um, on The Conspiracy Show in August. And uh, Peter, we, uh, we thank you for your time tonight. We will get you back on more often. We'll get you on before the, the big August show. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we'll, uh, we'll, get, we'll get the wheels in motion uh, putting that program together. So thank you. Sounds like fun. I'd, uh, I'd welcome that program. be a lot of fun. Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. And uh, again, Peter, give us a website. Uh, UFOcenter.com. We spell it strangely down here in the U.S. U-F-O-C-E-N-T-E-R. Nine letters, one word, UFOcenter.com. We have an online report form there that people may fill out with their reports. And we will post them and let the world know what people have been witness to. Terrific. Thank you, Peter, again. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I've enjoyed it. All right, and to you, Victor, as always, uh, thank you. And um, let's let's uh, let's get to work on that. Powerful stuff. It's it's amazing. And the point that uh, that Peter made about that uh, channel being purchased, that station being purchased to keep pops, you know, ostensibly to keep it off the air, uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense to look at that with the. Uh, with the way things are going and the way this information is being hidden. It's a really... I did, it never occurred to me to, to have a look at it from that perspective. Well, we'll do just that. Again, thank you, my friend. You're welcome. Victor Vigiani, News Director of the Zeland Communications News Network. That's it for me. And uh, let me take one final opportunity uh, to thank the man on the other side of the glass who's been with me since uh, day one, August 16th, 2009, when I began my uh, program here on uh, Zuma Radio AM 740. Uh, Dan Ellison is um, about to thumb his way across Canada, uh, out to the, uh, the West Coast to start a new life. And uh, uh, Dan, all I can say is thank you. Couldn't have done it without you. Uh, all the best, not only in your uh, career, but in your uh, in your adventure called life that you're about to begin. 
and uh, don't be a stranger. All right, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and come on. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.